following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, October 17th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The White House has gone from denying that the deal with the Ukrainians to withhold aid in return for an investigation into Hunter Biden was a quid pro quo. So they've gone from that denial to now admitting that it was a quid pro quo, but asserting that the important thing was that it wasn't a quid for a bad quo. So the Latin on that would be no quid pro malice quo. Here's Jonathan Carl putting the idea to Mick Mulvaney. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. So just so you know, it's a quid pro quo. Do our anti-Biden bidding or money will not flow. I like it. So it's not a quid pro quo. Or maybe it's more of a bona fide pro bono quid pro quo. Are we out of Latin phrases yet? How about nolo contendere, which I'm sure someone will be pleading in this case. But the idea of denying a quid pro quo in general has taken root for politicians far and wide, like this denial. No such thing as quid pro quo. Wait, wait, wait. That did not even sound like an American talking. And indeed, it wasn't. Here's New Zealand's TV One with the news. Did Hollywood swing it for new Wellington Mayor Andy Foster? That's a question being asked after an election upset, which has seen the candidate backed by director Sir Peter Jackson emerge victorious. Andy Foster is now mayor of New Zealand's capital city, Wellington, after a famous and very wealthy hobbit handler got involved. Peter Jackson objected to a government plan, or the old government's plan, to develop a waterfront area. And when a man of Peter Jackson's fame and wealth and influence objects to a proposal, he doesn't just say, right, I'd like you to go away now. He says, you shall not pass! Jackson argued that this high-density housing development would change the waterfront and was proposed without sufficient transparency. He feared a beautiful vista would be lost. This was all much mirrored in the plot of the film, Hobbit 2, The Desolation of Smaug. Others derided his concerns, which very much mirrored the critical reception to his film, The Hobbit 2, The Desolation of Smaug. But by a margin of 500 or so votes, Jackson's anti-development candidate won the mayor election. Now, some of the coverage that I've read have talked about Jackson giving a lot of money, but all of Andy Foster's outside donations added up to 27,000 American dollars. So $27,000, that's not exactly Anduril, you know, Anduril, reinforced from the shards of Narsil which Aragorn used to command the dead to aid him in the defeat of the Corsairs at Umber at the landings of Gondor. Hello, people. Oh, I'm sure you've heard the songs because the elves of the Third Age would always sing of this arrangement. Here are their lyrics translated from Sindarian. Near Barter's heights did a hobbit go to Mount Doom where the ring he'd throw. It was the fate of brave Frodo and... No such thing as quid pro quo. On the show today... I shall spiel about a thing that Donald Trump's always saying that you might not have paid attention to, 
but actually goes pretty far in describing the dysfunction that attends to our president. But first, he was Barack Obama's final Secretary of Defense, and he is out now with a really... It's interesting how this book is interesting because it's interesting in ways that you wouldn't think a Secretary of Defense's book would be interesting. It's not so much bang, bang. It's more like, I'd like a receipt for that. Ash Carter, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, here to talk about his new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box. Ash Carter was the 25th Secretary of Defense in the Modern Defense Department. He was President Barack Obama's final sec death, as they say. His memoir is called Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. Can I still call you Secretary Carter? Welcome. Yes. yes. Uh, don't call it a memoir, though. No, if you don't mind. it's not. It's very, much, um, <laughs> it's very much a book about a workplace. And how that workplace works. Yep. Largest as, institution in the world. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was thinking I have read dozens to hundreds of books written by former military. I've read a couple written by former secretaries of defense, and they always start the same way with a firefight. I'm pinned down in Quezon. I'm monitoring a raid in Tora Bora. And yours starts with procurement, the procurement <laughs> of the uh, joint strike fighter 12 pages in bunny van vanlet makes it right yes, yes. She's, so the point that you're writing about bunny van vanlet is that her husband was an officer who you wanted and you had to convince him and his wife not to retire to florida so you could procure this aircraft but it's telling to me that that's what you wanted to emphasize because i guess we the public don't realize how much of the job that is well i wanted somebody who picked it up to realize this wasn't your typical Washington memoir that would either start with a firefight, as you said, or with I was born in Philadelphia, yes. you know. Or uh, maybe even a firefight on off the Senate floor, that sort of uh, firefight. Uh, yes, yes. yes. Or yeah. kiss and tell. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. wouldn't believe what the, this president or that president did. This is a book about how to run the largest institution because I was the number three guy, then the number two guy, and the number one guy. So I'd been in every corner. Had anyone done and, that before? And one guy who was Bill Perry, who was... Bill Clinton, Secretary of yeah. Defense, yeah. had occupied those three roles before. No one else had been in He was an corner, excellent Secretary of corner. Defense, and you uh, worked with him closely. I, he, he was stood in for my father at my wedding. That's there how close I am to Bill. And I, I have been to a number of former Secretaries of Defense, Jim Schlesinger, Bob Gates, mm -hmm. all good friends as well as predecessors. But the, the reason to start the book inside the five-sided box with procurement is just most people know that about $700 billion of their money is spent by the Pentagon. They have an image, many of them, that some of it's wasted, mm -hmm. maybe even some of it, lots of it's wasted. Right, right. Toilet seats and, and hammers yeah, and these sure. so high-ticket items. So I take them to a, a place, a corner of the Pentagon they've never been, which is the corner where we buy stuff, and I was the so-called acquisition czar, and I thought that was as good as any as a place to give them an idea of what the book was about. And to their credit, my publisher said, that's fine, because a lot of people, once they start read it, Mike, have the same response, which is, geez, I didn't know that's how it worked. That's kind of interesting. 
Well, it's clear from reading the book that you are driven by issues of order and efficiency. Um, you talk, you compliment Barack Obama as being not only a smart person, but the phrase you use is an orderly thinker. And I had never thought about that before as a quality to have in a leader and especially a president. But now I realize it's, it's pretty important. And I was wondering if of the current crop of candidates, some of whom you know well, some of whom have blurbed your book, do you think any of them are orderly thinkers or do you worry about the orderliness of any of the thinking? Yeah, you may think orderliness is not a very high human attribute, but when it comes to matters of war and peace and life and death, and at that level where you you live in such a swirl, the ability to keep your head straight, and I did admire that in Barack Obama, and we as a department crave clarity and consistency. And one of the things I found as Secretary of Defense, I've had very little difficulty getting people to do what I told them to do. Mm-hmm. They needed to have that clarity and consistency. And when I could reflect the president's clarity and consistency, that was a, a very good thing to do. The people running today, so let's just think about them, most people who have a purely legislative background Mm -hmm. need to learn to be an executive. That doesn't come naturally. And Mm -hmm. I've served with some legislators who have struggled with the managerial dimensions of executive roles. Barack Obama did a pretty good job of making the transition. Maybe that was just because he was in the Senate for a short time. (laughs) It didn't get to him Um, Others have had no major executive responsibility at all, like the current president or even any public service responsibility. So we've had quite a variety in our history. But we in that now large and obviously almost all democratic field that you're talking about, there are a few mayors and governors. And they're the people, if you think back in history, who find it easiest to make that transition because their job is the most like the president's. Now, on the current president, you write in the book, I couldn't accept a job offer from someone like President Trump. By no means do I disagree with all his policies, but there would be a major difference on important issues like Russia and the Middle East and alliances. Most importantly, I couldn't support Decisions about defense made on sudden impulse, and you write, and this is important for people to hear, above all, I could not support an administration characterized by repeated acts of offensive behavior like those I would fire an officer for committing racist remarks, hateful and divisive speech, casual references to sexual assault and adultery, and so on. Here is my question. Jim Mattis, who you write about and slept next to on transcontinental flights yep. on Bill Perry's plane, you obviously hold him in high regard, he came to a different conclusion beyond the respect you have for him and the collegiality, are you glad that he did, that someone decided to become the adult in the room? Well, yeah, I'm grateful to Jim. He's an old friend of mine, and I think he served honorably in very different, difficult circumstances. He himself came to the conclusion, the same conclusion I report in the book, and he says so in his letter of resignation. What I was saying there in the book is it is a myth that if the president of the United States calls you and offers you a job, that the only answer to give is yes. You have two reasons to take a job. One is to help the president, and you must take it with the belief that you're going to actually be helpful to the president. Mm -hmm. If you take it with the belief that all you're doing is checking the president or thwarting the president or you're reasonably 
can reasonably expect to immediately come into conflict with the president, you're not helping him by taking that job. Secondly, you have to live with yourself and your own principles and your sense of what's good for America. And in both of those cases, I, I don't see how with this president, I've met him a few times, I don't know him well, but just looking from the outside in at the environment, I don't see, how, and Jim's experience, how to be effective in helping him be a good president or a better president. And I certainly, as I said in the book, some of the things that are now talked about every day in Washington as though everybody does them or it's okay are not okay with me. Right. And I, they're not going to be okay in my military. Could I ask you, though, when you took your oath at, to be Secretary of Defense, was the oath to uh, the Constitution yes. and the country? Yes. Did, was the president mentioned? Yes. You have an obligation to carry out the president's lawful orders. Mm-hmm. But you're the you're first when you raise your hand. It is to the Constitution of the United States and to a defeat, by the way, all enemies, ex foreign and domestic. Yes, yes. And when I was the when I was the top money spender, I always used to remember the domestic. Part yeah, Lockheed. Um, but I guess my question is, maybe Jim Mattis or some of the others looked at it. Similarly, as you did, but said that there there were competing valences, there were competing considerations, and perhaps they said that my job, you're right, I can't really help the president that much carry out his agenda, but what I can do is help the country by keeping the president from hurting the country. I would think there might be legitimacy. That's a respectable point of view. I don't share it because it's doomed to end. Yeah, it is not being an ingenuous with the president of the United States. So if you know you're going to end up in opposition and he's saying, will you come and help me? Mm-hmm. And you know you're not coming in to help him. That's something I, I I would think is dishonest. Now, Jim's not dishonest. He just didn't know. None of us knew what Donald Trump would be like as president as he himself says so it's no fault to Jim and Jim obviously eventually came to the view that it, it he wasn't and that's what his letter says that their views were and their styles were just too far apart and I'm more with Jim's views and more and style yeah. myself so oh geez where to start I'll start with this a defense that was uh, articulated for Donald Trump's policy, if you want to call it that, and I'll quote Senator Rand Paul, is that there are only 50 troops left. And at that point, there's no way that 50 troops can thwart the Turkish army rolling in. What's your assessment of that defense? Well, we, we only had, it was 50 special forces, actually, people back in 2015, when it all started, mm-hmm. who found, for me, the Syrian Kurds and that they were willing to be our infantry in a march on Raqqa. Remember, Raqqa was the so-called capital of the the so-called caliphate of ISIS. And Mike, you remember 2015, there were attacks in Paris, these maniacs shooting people, running over people in Florida, detonating bombs at the Boston a marathon. You mm-hmm. can't have that stuff. I'm right. supposed to protect you. I'm your secretary of defense. And so these guys needed to be destroyed and they needed to be destroyed in Syria as well as in Iraq, in Mosul in Iraq, Raqqa in Syria and everywhere in between. And we could do it ourselves, but we found 
these Kurds who are willing to fight for us if only we'd advise them and bring down the great tornado of our might in support of them, our intelligence, our firepower, our logistics, our advising, and supercharge them, they would get rid of ISIS. And they did. And we're a lot safer for it. Now, if we walk away from them and ISIS comes back, which it will, they're not all dead, unfortunately. And uh, so some of them are being detained and some of them are still further down the Euphrates Valley. So it wasn't completely over yet. ISIS will come back and we're going to have to do it all over again, Mike, to protect ourselves. And next time, nobody will go with us because we don't stick with them. Right. Alliances help us, it turns out, as yeah. well as, you know, it's yeah. not just generosity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Turkey's ongoing membership of NATO is something we can or should question? Well, we should certainly question it. We've been questioning it from the very beginning because here's this Asian, now Middle Eastern country in a what has been a European alliance. But during the Soviet Union, we thought they had a important piece of real estate, which is right between the Soviet Union and the Middle East. Yeah. We had a friend. Yeah. And that seemed like a good thing to have. And so we, and they wanted to be part of NATO and they wanted to be part of the West. Now we have Erdogan and I've dealt with Erdogan. Um, he, his original wound, which has made him so erratic and hostile toward the West was really with the EU when Turkey was not admitted to the European Union. That was an insult from which Erdogan has not recovered. It, it spread to NATO, which is not the European Union. It is a military arm that has the United States in it. Mm -hmm. And we, we began to have trouble with the Turkish, with Turkey in the context of the alliance, which we'd never had in the past. And that came from Erdogan. Now Erdogan behaves very erratically. He acts as though he's going to come in and change things in Syria. I don't think he will. He acts as if he may throw over the United States as his best friend and pick up Russia. Really? Russia? And I, I said that to the Turks. I'd always say, you're going to go buy their stuff. You know our stuff is better. Mm -hmm. You're going to count on them when you know you can count on us better and to that extent, I didn't think that they really had a card to play there. But he is calling, he, Erdogan, is calling into question the orientation of Turkey toward the Western camp. That's not good for us because we're part of the Western camp. At the same time, I can't stop him from doing it. We need to stand strong for the things that we need to do to, to defend ourselves. But it's not a good development. And it's all Erdogan. Ash Carter, Secretary of Defense, author of Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. I learned more about procurement of air tankers than I ever thought I wanted to know. And procurement of dogs. If you like dogs, that's in there too. It's a really fascinating book. And thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, Mike. And because I learned so much, I want to perhaps teach you something. Do you know what a cephalophore is? No, I should. You it? shouldn't. I don't know if you should. Maybe you should. 
Acephalophore is a figure who bears his own head, a figure who carries his own head. All right, I get the etymology. Right, and the reason I found out about this was I was looking up the life of St. Denis, Uh who you studied, a notable cephalophore. (laughs) So there you go. And I also found out that the artists, the sculptors who depict mostly saints who carry their own heads, have a conundrum where to put the halo. Do you put it on the head or above where the head was? So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Very good. Above the stump or above yeah, the tough. arm? It's a tough I, call. I yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it yeah is. I don't know. There's no right answer, I guess. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. In less than 19 seconds yesterday, Donald Trump uttered four lies or misleading statements, each distinct, each quite confused. Here, let's play that clip. The situation on the Turkish border with Syria to be for the United States strategically brilliant. Our soldiers are out of there. Our soldiers are totally safe. They've got to work it out. Maybe they can do it without fighting. Syria is protecting the Kurds. Uh, That's good. Okay. Syria is not protecting the Kurds. The Kurds are getting killed. Syria attempting to protect or aligning with the Kurds is not good. They can't do it without fighting. And of course, not strategically brilliant. And yet the clause in that clip, that clip with one lie every 4.25 seconds, the clause I want to focus on is Donald Trump asserting maybe they can work this out. This is his great advice in so many international incidents. After the Oval Office clip that you heard, he went before a greater gathering of the press and said something very similar. We have a situation where Turkey is taking land from Syria. Syria is not happy about it. Let them work it out. Well, it's not about land because you know who's on that land, living on the land, defending the land. It's the Kurds, the Kurdish people. The land has people on it, people who were our allies. And when I say who were our allies, it is because we betrayed them. And also I'm using the past tense were because so many have been killed. Thank you, Turks. Thank you, Trump. And remember, this is a situation that because Trump is so loath to ever portray himself as less than brilliant, that Trump is asserting that he totally foresaw. He said, and I will quote, no, President Erdogan's decision didn't surprise me because he's wanted to do that, roll into Syria, for a long time. All right, let's let's consider this. There, Trump is admitting he knew this slaughter would come, and it did come, thus rendering his tweet warning off Turkey before it actually came as really confusing. Remember, he tweeted, as I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I and my great and unmatched wisdom consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. But wait, but wait, I said, stupidly arguing with a monkey in a hurricane. But wait, if you are so smart and you knew that it would happen, why did you have to issue a conditional threat based on the mere possibility that it might happen? Maybe the answer is that Trump had a faith that they could all work it out. And why would he have that faith? Well, I guess he thinks somewhere deep down that it would just make it easier for him. And so if he says, work it out, it'll work out so great. Like all those other times, he's advised two sides to work it out. It came a few months ago as regards the Hong Kong protesters. I hope it all works out for China and for Hong Kong. Uh Uh-huh. 
So let's be fair to Donald Trump. Let's be much fairer than he deserves. Donald Trump's an isolationist. You could say he doesn't really care if they work it out, if the Hong Kong protesters work it out. He doesn't even care if the Kurds work it out. So shouldn't we take his words hoping that they work it out as, I don't know, maybe it really is his hope. Maybe it's naivete. Maybe it's just a somewhat genteel way for as far as Trump knows gentility. Maybe it's a genteel way for him to say, I'm essentially washing my hands of the situation. Aha. But I have found many other situations where it is obvious that Trump has a stake in the outcome. And by saying Trump has a stake, Trump stakes, fine cuts, by putting forward the idea that in other situations that Trump has skin in the game, I of course don't mean he has American interests at heart or the national credibility at heart or even something good for the American people at heart. No, I'm not a sucker. When I say that there are situations when Trump has skin in the game, he is motivated to affect a favorable outcome because it would help him and it would help him personally. And still, in those situations, he is still as unskilled as to say anything but, oh, maybe you guys could work it out. All right. The New York Times reported on tension between Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollini. And the issue was hiring Trey Gowdy. This was in the news a couple days ago. They needed an advisor for this impending impeachment. A quote from the Times. Among those generally concerned about someone working specifically on impeachment outside the White House counsel's office was the White House counsel himself, Pat Cipollini, according to three people involved in the discussions. Mr. Mulvaney and Mr. Cipollini have repeatedly been at odds since the impeachment inquiry began with one disagreement about hiring an additional lawyer taking place in front of Mr. Trump, according to a person familiar with the discussion. Mr. Trump told the two aides to work it out on their own. Well, here's how they worked it out. The White House announced, we've hired Trey Gowdy. He's a terrific guy. Gowdy contradicts them within a half an hour, saying my law firm does not like this. It blows up. Trump's embarrassed. And it's all because he couldn't be at all concerned with the details and also what his underlings lack in loyalty they make up for in obtuseness. Then... Another, hey guys, work it out. Then there was another New York Times report. This was about the tension between Trump underlings Rudy Giuliani and Rex Tillerson back when Tillerson was Secretary of State. Tillerson couldn't believe what Giuliani was proposing because he had a client and he wanted the State Department to go easy or to just let off the hook this Turkish national who had been accused of funneling $10 billion worth of golden cash to Iran. All right? Tillerson said, uh, no. It would be quite inappropriate to interfere with an ongoing criminal case on behalf of a guy who was working for Turkey to help Iran. But it was Giuliani's client and he wanted and he wanted some intervention. So what did the president do? What did the president do in this spat between his appointed cabinet officer who was fourth in line for the presidency and some guy named Rudy who was always hanging around the office? Again, I will quote the New York Times. Rather than side with his secretary of state, Mr. Trump told them to work it out themselves. Now, Trump says a lot of crazy, falsifiable, unmoored to reality things, statements like the following that are on their face just so embarrassing. So it's a very uh, semi-complicated, not too complicated if you're smart, but it's a semi-complicated problem. And I think it's a problem that we have very nicely under control. We have... But he also, Trump does, issues these vague platitudes that because they aren't forehead slapping, maybe we let them pass. 
as, as Gandalf said. Reasonable people over the years have said, hey, work it out. Smart people have hoped maybe they can work it out. Strategic thinkers have offered advice to work it out uh, as a means of buying time. Keep, keep negotiating, you know, maybe as a means of expressing support. Hard, capable leaders sometimes have the forbearance to pull back and know that an instruction to work it out can often lead to a good result. Strong leaders might say, maybe you could work it out knowing that a solution that comes from the principles will be stronger than one that comes from the top down. But you know what? Trump is none of those things. Trump is not smart. He is ignorant. Trump is not strategic. He is impulsive. Trump is not a hard, capable leader. He is an easily distracted and overmatched figurehead. He is not strong. He is weak. And when he asks or hopes or punts, hey, maybe they could work it out. He is abdicating his duties and demonstrating to us once more the multifarious flavors of his incompetence. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is a producer of The Gist, the producer of The Gist, some would say. He's trying to get Taika Watiti to run an opposition candidate in Wellington because that guy is good at working in the shadows. Christina DeJosa, Gist producer, is envisioning a Jane Campion-led PAC political action committee. And their symbol will be a naked Harv, and their symbol will be a naked Harvey Keitel astride a giant Kiwi. The Gist. Ash Carter, top job in the Defense Department, worst job in Dickensian England. Ash Carter. Mumpuru Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.